right perspective. It has nothing to do with me asking you for money. It's about God asking you for your heart. The second disclaimer that I have to make is this. We don't talk about money in this church all the time. Would you agree with that, church family? If you're here, I mean, just inevitably, every time I come to a stewardship Sunday and preach on money, there's a first-time guest somewhere here, and they're going, "Mm mm-hmm, those Baptists talking about money again. I can promise you, this is the first time I have preached about money this year. Okay, that's pretty bad. This is the second time I've preached about money since I got here. I typically preach one money-related, financial-related stewardship message a year. And it's usually around this time, around January. And I did last January. So as you think about this as a first-time guest, I want you to hear this hopefully with fresh perspective that the Baptists are not just trying to shake people down for money. I'm not just preaching a message, trying to get into your pocketbook, not at all. I'm trying to preach a message where God gets into your heart and realigns and reprioritizes some things for all of us. And as we think about that, let's go back to our Life Guide verse for just a moment. I'll just read it to you. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what I want you to do with me, church and choir. I want you to sit down with me on the bank, if you will, of the Sea of Galilee. We're on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee and our desire is to hear from a rabbi who is going to teach and preach. And because this rabbi is getting more and more developed with a a, a sense of renown and a a mindset of miracles around him, people want to come here. I I venture a guess that he probably determined to sit down on this northern edge of the Sea of Galilee on a hillside only with his disciples. But when it really came down to it, the huge throngs of crowds that gathered around him really begin to, as they wanted to hear his words, begin to shape this into probably what has been known as one of the most famous sermons ever preached. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave this famous sermon. As he spoke these words, he spelled out a radical new way to look at life, to look at religion, to look at money, to look at morals. And for you and I today, I want us just to simply sit on that hillside and listen to the words of Jesus and see if it redirects our thinking like it would the Pharisees perhaps that he was pointing his words toward. Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse 19. Follow along with me. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you put on. Is life not more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Uh, They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And not much worth... uh, 
not much work, excuse me, and not worth much more than, the, let me try that again. Are you not worth much more than they? Uh, and you who being uh, worried can add a single hour to his life. And why are you worried about your clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not more, how much more will he not clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Imagine we're sitting on this Judean hillside. We're sitting beside the Sea of Galilee. The waves are lapping up on the shore. And on the hillside, as we hear these words ring out, he's speaking directly into our culture. Our culture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the, the contents of this sermon, he really begins to point at the hypocrisy of religion. He says, you need to view yourself a little differently. And what we read is he moves forward and said, you need to view money a little differently. You need to view provision a little differently. And so Jesus is speaking to each of our hearts here today. And here's my desire that we would pray. Let's just pause for a moment. Pray, ask God to clearly speak into our hearts about this matter of stewardship and stewarding our resources. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for the time that we have. And God, we thank you for these great and powerful words of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts about this matter. Uh, again, Lord, not that it would change us for the benefit of the church, but God, that you would change us for the benefit of our relationship with you, that our hearts would be softened toward you in this manner of the things that we have. God, thank you for this day and for this time. Bless it even now in Jesus' name, amen. If you and I were to go back to the Beatitudes, Jesus first and foremost addressing the hypocrisy of religion, he's saying to people who think, well, I'm, I'm okay. There may be some people here today that say, well, I'm a member of Hardy Street Baptist Church. I'm okay. I, I'm a member of a, a church. My family have been going to this church or some other church for many, many years. The Pharisees believed because of their own pride and their pedigree and their uh, credentials that they were okay before God. And Jesus started this message right off the bat with the Beatitudes. He said, in essence, we're to be poor in spirit, not proud. We need to be meek and not strong. We're to be pure in heart and not entangled with the world. We're to be peacemakers, not war lovers. We're to be rejoicing in um, trouble instead of complaining when, when things come our way. Why? He goes on to say, because we're salt and we're light in the world. Our lives ought to make other people hungry for Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Our lives ought to make others hunger for Jesus Christ in your daily business life, in your home life, in your neighborhood, at school. Your life ought to impact others in this way that they would hunger for 
righteousness. And the Beatitudes clearly spell that out. Jesus wanted to help them to see themselves, so he held up a mirror. In fact, if we were to go back to verse 18, he talks about fasting and praying. He says, clean yourself up or go into your prayer closet. When you fast, don't let people know you're fasting. When you're praying, it's not about others seeing you pray. So you can see that they were puffing themselves up and Jesus is knocking them down. And for you and for me, he wants us to see a right view of several things. Let's go to that next screen. He wants us to see a right view of ourselves. That we are spiritually bankrupt. That without Christ, we can't enter the kingdom of God. If we come into the equation thinking that we own anything, we can't be saved. We have to empty ourselves of our own ability and say, Lord, I cling to you and you alone. A right view of self, a right view of God. A right view of moral issues. That's where we get into these, these issues of money and divorce. He speaks to all kinds of other things. In fact, he, he talks about how to handle lust, how to treat other people, how we should feel about divorce, the importance of keeping our word, and the difference between true and false prayer. You see, he's giving us all of these things, and then he comes to the end, and he says, let me talk to you for a few minutes about money. Now, why would it not surprise us that he would talk about money? Because you and I have seen the detrimental effects of money. Money can split up marriages. Money can end friendships. It can turn business partners into brutal enemies. Money can become one of those things that just latches itself into our life as a sprout and it root, takes root as greed. And that greed can consume a person. Now, I don't have to tell you that financial woes are, are of those nature, that they are that destructive. In fact, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So here Jesus is wanting us to begin to think about it, and he wants us to make some critical decisions about how we make it, how we spend it, how we invest it, how we hoard it or not, how we deal with money. Many a divorce lawyer will tell you that in the top two or three reasons for divorce, finances always comes to the surface. Usually communication is an issue, sometimes infidelity, but financial woes almost always have a problem with this. Some of you say, well, I'm single. I don't have to worry about that. I promise you, if you ever plan to marry, I want you to hear this. Money can become detrimental to your marriage. Now, why would I speak to this in a church? Money can be damaging inside a church. But the bigger issue is, is what money can do to your heart. Jesus said, no man can serve God and serve wealth. And so you need to see, it's a roadblock. It's a big sign. God is saying, I want to make sure that you don't hurt yourself. It's a warning. And he does it in two different ways. He gives a, a negative command and then he gives a positive command. He gives a prohibition, don't do this. And then he gives a permissive promise, do this. And then he gives us ultimately the result. That's what I want us to see together. Let's look back together at our text. With this negative command, he begins verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Here's the point I want you to get. Earthly wealth is inherently insecure. Let's put that on the screen. Earthly wealth is inherently insecure. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to tell you that if you're investing in things here on earth, in the realm of money, we are not supposed to raise up dollars here to keep for ourselves and hoard for ourselves. And here's why. It's a prohibition and an exclusion, and we're not to lay up treasures on earth. We'll get to the why in just a moment. 
Some of you are saying, what does that even mean, Scott? Pastor, what are you telling me? I can't have a savings account. I can't have insurance. I can't have anything. Jesus said very clearly, what are the words? Do not lay up for yourself. Read those next three words for treasures on earth. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you would say you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ in your heart? Many of you, some of you want to raise your hand and say, yes, I am. Jesus himself just said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. If Jesus, the one you call your Lord and master said that, you better investigate it. What does he mean? Let me give you several things that he does not mean. Let's kind of backdoor this for a second. He is not forbidding material possessions in and of themselves. We know that because he and his disciples had material possessions. If Jesus was telling us not to do something that he would himself do, that would be hypocritical and he didn't do that. He's not telling us you can't have material possessions. He's also not against the personal owning of property. He's not saying that at all. Throughout scripture, there are many places where personal property was owned. He went back to the home of his friend, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He went to several different places where people owned things. Actually, they were stewards, not owners. We know that. But God is not saying here that we can't have stuff. The next thing, he's not saying don't save for the future. In fact, in another place in the Gospels, he says you need to consider the cost of discipleship much like a man would consider the cost of building a tower. Have I saved up enough to build? So saving is not bad. He's also not saying you can't invest for a greater return. Why would you say that, Pastor? He gave illustration through parable of men who would invest for their master. And he wouldn't use that kind of an illustration had he not understood that's part of the natural culture and it's a wise thing to do. If I can make my money work for me, if I can earn, but we'll see in a moment what he really means. He's also not saying you can't have insurance or you can't have nice things. Why would Jesus say, don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth. Here's the key. The key is this little phrase, for yourself. Write that down. He's saying, do not lay up treasures on earth for yourself. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is forbidding the selfish, self-centered accumulation of goods as the major end to life. Let's put that on the screen. Let's focus on this together. He's saying, I don't want you to selfishly begin to accumulate stuff for yourself and let that take root in your heart as greed. Don't do that. Can I save? Yes. Can I invest? Yes. Can I prepare for the future? Yes. But when it becomes for me a consuming selfish passion and all of my days, all of my thought is just consumed with getting everything that I can, Jesus is saying, do not do that. He says that's dangerous for your soul. He's saying that you need to be so very careful. You know, the world thinks that way. Malcolm Forbes was reported as the one who used to say all the time, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Let me say that again. Forbes would say, the one who dies with the most toys wins. That's Malcolm Forbes. You want me to give you a Scott Hanbury version? The one who dies with the most toys still dies. It all goes back in the box. When we finish playing a game at our house, everything goes back in the box. We finish Monopoly at all, hopefully. Well, maybe at your house, at our house, it's 
scattered. I step on Legos and my Monopoly money all the time that doesn't quite make it into the box. But the, the idea is it would all go back in the box. And the reality is in life, if you die, your stuff doesn't go with you. The old preacher story is that we've never seen and you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. And sadly, so many people are consumed with this selfish idea of accumulating and then their life is taken from them and all of a sudden, all that that seemed to matter the most matters none. Here's the reality of what this means. I want to give you just a few quick thoughts. What are we supposed to do in consideration of Jesus saying, don't do this? Number one, we're to reject extravagant living. We're to reject extravagant living. Now, I recognize there are different standards. I live extravagantly compared to somebody that lives in Haiti or somebody that lives in India, and so do you. There, half the population of the world lives on $2 a day or less. We consume three times that on one cup of coffee every once in a while at six bucks or Starbucks or whatever it's called. The reality is we spend a lot of money compared to other people, but an extravagant lifestyle. Now, again, what, what may be extravagant for me may be commonality for you or vice versa. But, but I realize that this lower middle class of, of America is rich compared to the world. And here's the thing. The standards of extravagance from culture to culture are different, but it, it really is a principle that remains the same. When I get to a place where I'm wanting to have this gaudy lifestyle of just accumulation, and, and here's a better principle even for you to think about. If I use things for anything other than their intended purpose, it's probably become an idol. If I buy a car for status, not transportation, that's idolatrous. If I buy a car just because of the symbol that's on the hood or on the wheels, a car is for transportation. And when I'm trying to find status, you see, my status ought to come from Jesus. My status comes from my relationship with Him. If I buy clothes for status, because of the label that is on the jeans or on the sweater or on the shirt or on the purse or on the whatever. If I am spending money for something that will bring status and it really is just nothing more than a purse that should carry other stuff or a shirt that should cover my body, then it can become idolatrous and that becomes extravagant. You see, I need to just say, Lord, simply my needs are those things that you will meet and I need to look to the Lord for my needs. And so what he's saying is when I start storing things up for myself, I have crossed over the line and I'm no longer looking for him to be my provider and my sustainer. Does that make sense? Yes or no? My, my heart's desire here is for all of us to begin to see very practically that the one with the most toys who dies still dies and one day all of us will die unless the Lord comes back first. Secondly, I want you to see this. We're not to ignore the needy. All over scripture, the Bible reserves harsh denunciations, harsh punishment for those who would ignore the needy. In fact, God said through James that true religion is to take care of orphans and widows. It's to minister to the defenseless. And so one of the things here that he is saying is you need to take care of needs that are around you. If I'm living an extravagant, selfish lifestyle, I'm ignoring needs of others. 
In the New Testament, it was so clear and so plain in the church that was emerging that if a man had two coats and his neighbor had none, there was no question, I give you what you need. They held things in common and said simply, we'll meet one another's needs in the love of Jesus. Don't neglect or ignore the needy. Thirdly, I want you to see this. We are not to live as if this world is the only world there is. Rather, we live our lives in light of a world that is to come. And when we do so, we begin to see something pretty powerful. Now, let's go back to this notion of why Jesus said this. He said this because earthly gain, earthly wealth is inherently unstable. I said that before. It'll rust, it will rot, it will deteriorate, it will go away. I said last week, your stuff that you would fight me for today will end up on a garage sale table or at an auction block years from now. Or your kids or your grandkids will throw it away, take it to the dump, or, or pull out the things that they want or sell it. The reality is that so much of the stuff that we clamor for is worthless. Jesus said there's two very simple problems. It'll be destroyed over time, corruption from within, and it'll be stolen by thieves violence from without. That's what happens to fortune if we live for the wealth of this world. It'll be destroyed or stolen. The writer of Proverbs said this, write down Proverbs 23, 5. This gripped me this week. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Now, we don't have time to really delve into this matter deeply, but even over the course of, of time, um, the world keeps up with keeping score of those who live this way. Forbes put together the 400 list and Forbes 400 list is the 400 richest people in the world. They started doing it about 30 years ago. Bill Gates has been at the top for I think the last 17 years. Billions of dollars that one man owns. You have to have at least $3 billion in 2016 to make the top 400 list. There's at least 400 people in this world that have at least that level of wealth. The interesting thing is the numbers of people that have been on that list in the past are astronomical. Usually a hundred or more slide off the list or slide onto the list almost every year. That means that people get wealth and lose it. You see, wealth doesn't stay with us when it's earthly wealth. And 2,000 years ago, on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said that. Jesus said, don't store up this kind of wealth. Why? Because it will rot, rust and rot. Malls will get in it and eat it. It will decay and deteriorate. It won't last. So what am I telling you, church? If I'm going to think about his treasure, not mine, if it really is all his, then I need to stop and say, how can I invest in something that will last forever? And how can I use money in a way that will please the Lord? I'm glad you asked that question. Here's the deal. When you set your life to store up wealth on this world, you're setting your life up after that which cannot last. So we move forward. And thinking about it, that was the negative command. Verse 20 is the positive. Only a few words change. He says, do store up for yourself treasures, not on earth, but where? Where? In heaven, not on earth, but in heaven. Second thing I want you to see, here it is. Heaven is the only place where our wealth will be secure. Heaven's the only place where your wealth will be secure. Now, some of you are saying, uh-huh, here comes the spill. He wants me to give more to the church. I'm not saying that at all. 
I'm taking Jesus' words. He's just saying, as a sound financial investor, you ought to consider, I can lose all of this and I'm guaranteed to over time. I can never lose this. That's a great, great investment. Our wealth is secure in heaven. What we send ahead is secure in heaven. How do we know that? Here's that one sentence answer. You store up for yourself treasures in heaven by investing your money in things that will last for eternity. Now, what are those? The Bible says that the word of God will stand forever. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we know that souls of men will last forever. So why don't you and I determine that we're going to invest in getting the word of God into the souls of men. We're gonna get the word of God into people. And that's what happens when you give to a Christian university, when you give to uh, mission causes, when you give to the church, when you give to missionaries and mission agencies, when you give and God gives through you to advance the kingdom, when we give to buy Bibles that will be given away, when we give to distribute tracts, all those kinds of things. And, and I'm simply saying, we begin to look at everything that we have in light of what God has given us. God created the world and we know it's passing away. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will last forever. Invest in that which will last forever, the word of God and people. Now, how do you do that? L let me give you a couple of quick thoughts. We have designed the worldwide missions offering. None of that money stays here at the church. No, it's all distributed out. One of the goals that we gave at the State of the Church Address is that you would consider giving one day's wage to the Worldwide Missions Offering. I, I would challenge you to give regularly to that just to keep it in front of you. That's why we designed that offering. It, it very simply is a way to support church planners and missionaries and pastors and, and ministries. It, it will bless those ministries. But, but consider how much you make over the course of a year, divide it by 365 and let that be a goal this year and say, I'm gonna give that much money in 2017 to that offering. It's not gonna stay at Hardy Street. It goes to all of those ministries. That is a practical way that you can invest in God's kingdom advancing. You can invest in treasures in heaven. Does that make sense? And some of you say, Brother Scott, I don't have money to invest. I don't have money to, to give. I'm struggling. Well, let me just help you out. I want to give you two very quick thoughts. You need to write this down. I didn't put it on the screen anywhere. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. It's this big. It's really, really little. It doesn't have any pictures in it, but it's that little, okay? My textbooks all had pictures in them. I do well with those kind. You can't color. I guess you could color on it, but you can't color in it. This book has meant more to me in terms of finances, the treasure principle by Randy Alcorn. Go by Lifeway and pick it up. This will be an investment in something eternal because this will get you thinking and your family thinking about God's way to manage your resources. Very simply, I want you to, we want to help you. One of the other things that our church offers, and I want everybody here to hear this, we last year felt very burdened and, and very passionate about this. And we sent one of our members to Nashville, Tennessee to go through a week-long training with Dave Ramsey and the Lampo Group. It's for financial coaching. Brian Robinson is a member of our church. He's a certified financial coach. And through the church, he can offer to you financial coaching. He's not gonna tell you where to invest your money, but he can help you budget. He can help you understand God's principles for how to handle your money. If you'd like to schedule an appointment with 
him, call our church office and they can get you connected with him and help you out. Some of you may end up being a free fall financially. You may say, I just can't even stop the bleeding. And for you to talk about investment is a joke, Scott. Some of you have earned and amassed wealth over a lifetime and you're trying to figure out what your legacy looks like. The reality is he can help with either of those and any of those. And I would encourage you to do that. It's a free service. We work with him and we can help with some of the expense of that. We give him an office here, but call us. We would love to help you with that kind of coaching. Now, why do I say all that? We've got to wrap this up and move forward. Jesus takes us to the third place in verse 21. And I want you to see this. Your heart follows your money. Your heart follows your money. Some of you say that's backwards, Scott. Your, mo- your, heart, your money follows your heart. Where your heart is, that's where your money's gonna go. Jesus didn't say that, did he? He said where your, help me out folks, come on, don't quit yet. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So some of you say, I wish I was more concerned about eternal things. You know how you can be? Start investing there. You start giving for one of the missionaries that we have in our worldwide missions offering. You learn their names. I've seen this happen over and over again. When we planted our church in Idaho, we moved out there and my mother-in-law's heart was not in it. I'll just confess that. She prayed against us moving her grandbabies 3,000 miles away. And all of a sudden, her and her Sunday school class said, well, I guess we gotta pray for them. No, of course they wanted to pray. They started sending us care packages and they started deeply falling in love with the people of North Idaho. And they would say, tell me about who you're witnessing to and tell me what's going on there. And they invested dollars in that ministry and they invested time in that ministry. It was so much fun. We would get care packages of pecans from Bass Pecan Orchard. And we would get grits like we couldn't get out there. We'd get sweet tea. I was like, we can get tea. They just don't have the recipe out here, but we can can get tea. And they would always send toilet paper. And we laughed about this because we said, we don't live on a Pony Express stop. We're in a pretty big town. And we realized they were just using that as packing. So it worked out fine. But your heart will follow your treasure. You start giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and you're going to find interest in what God's doing in parts of the world. And I don't care if you're a student who makes babysitting money uh, or, or you're uh, a retiree who draws a fixed income. God wants you to see yourself as a steward of everything that you have. And it'll bless this church. Now, I could do this and I will for just a moment. I'm not going to stay there long. The reality is the average evangelical in America gives 2.3% toward the cause of their church. God, we want you to bless our church. And he said, okay, here's my standard. Now, God didn't set a standard of 10%, a tithe, and say, that's it. In the New Testament, Jesus praised a woman who gave everything she had. So you want to be an Old Testament or a New Testament giver? Either way. Here's what I believe. If God, it would be so much easier if God had said, this is what I require. You give me 21% and once you've done that, you've met your requirement. You know what we would do? We would in legalistic terms, hopefully, maybe be obedient and give 21% and be done with it and say, okay, that's it. God doesn't want that. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. He wants our hearts. And so God says, just love me and let your money be a reflection 
of your love for me. Your heart will follow after the investment. You begin to give. You begin to send things ahead. And, and I finish with this. You've probably heard variations of the story. A man goes to heaven. He's there at the pearly gates and, and he is given the tour. He's being shown around all of heaven. St. Peter shows him around. He sees phenomenal mansions all around. And he said, that mansion, surely mine is like that one. And he said, that one belongs to your maid. She worked tirelessly to help you in your home. And she was faithful and she loved me and she gave and she cared. And that's hers. And he went on and he saw another mansion and he said, who is that? And he said, that's Miss Jones that lived down the street. And Miss Jones was so faithful to bake for people and care for people and to give. And she would crochet and she would knit and she would do different things and she would pray for the missionaries and all these different things. That's hers. And he comes to another section and of course it's fictitious, but in the story he comes to a place and he sees almost a shanty town section and it's tar paper roof and, and not much is completely finished. And he said, this sir is yours. He said, we did the best we had with the materials that you sent ahead. What are you sending ahead? If you can't keep it here, you can send it ahead. And it's not about giving to Hardy Street Baptist Church. It's about giving your heart to the Lord. Does that make sense? Yes. It's all His. You said that last week. We agreed upon that. If it's all His, let's start acting like it. What would it look like if we took seriously just that command to tithe? Oh Lord, we're going to tithe together. We're going to give. We're going to give one day's wage to the Worldwide Missions Offering. We're going to support missionaries and mission causes. We're going to see people saved. You see, world hunger exists because not a lack of food, but a distribution problem. I've said that before. We've got all of these Christian resources right here in the buckle of the Bible belt and people all around the world that are in desperate need of the gospel. Let's take the gospel to them. Let's take it to them. Let's send it to them. Let's invest in it and do all that we can. Here's the bottom line question. Today, where's your heart? You realize I could look at your checkbook and see where your heart is. Because the Bible says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Can I just be candid and honest and tell you, if you in years past had looked through my checkbook, my heart was in my stomach, we should eat out all the time. I, I'm being real with you. All of a sudden I find myself saying, you know what, if I spent this on Lottie Moon, if I gave this to the cause of the church, it would make an impact that lasts beyond a few extra calories that stick around in an unhealthy way. Is it okay for us to eat out? Absolutely. But when we calibrate our gratitude, we recognize that God owns it all and that He gives us the ability to earn that which would purchase that meal. And he also gives us the beautiful opportunity to invest in things that will never rust, never rot, never fade or fail. Then we can do that together. And I say, let's do that together in 2017. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your words. Lord, I know this is a, a different kind of a focus, but Jesus, as you preached these words, there were so many that were depending on their own righteousness and their, their own status. God, this room is filled with hearts that are the same. 
And the reason I know that, Lord, is because it's so easy for my heart to be that way. Help, Lord, to give us freedom from material greed and let us be stewards, not owners, of all that you have given us and let us invest your treasure because it's yours, not ours. God, I pray that this would be a message that would drive truth into the hearts of the people that are here and that it would create fruit that remains. In Jesus' name, amen.